You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. The rule of law, which was supposed to free us from the tyranny of King George, has become a tyranny in and of itself, and it is managed by the lawyers, the lobbyists, the legislators, the bureaucrats. Lawyer and TV personality, Catherine Cryer. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Well, Catherine Cryer had a remarkable legal career. At the age of 30, she became the youngest ever elected judge in the state of Texas. But within a few years, she had discovered another calling, television. Catherine Cryer became a journalist and TV personality, eventually hosting her own show on Court TV. And along the way, she developed some strong opinions about the profession in which she had gotten her start, the law. Her 2002 book called The Case Against Lawyers became a New York Times bestseller. And that's when I first met Catherine Cryer. So here now, from 2002, Catherine Cryer. I wrote The Case Against Lawyers because from the time I was four or five years old, I wanted to be one. I had this dream that they were the sentinels, if you will, guarding our freedom, the great rule of law, the cornerstone of a democracy. And after time as a district attorney and a civil litigation attorney and then a tenure on the bench and now about 14 years reporting on law and politics, um, I've come to some conclusions. And I've talked about it for a long time, finally decided I was going to put it in print. Well, you are, as many of us are, a, a, an article clipper. Oh, yes. And, and you file, file them carefully away. But, you know, it occurs to me, the, even those of us who work in the media, when you report on these cases one by one, it's like the thousand little pinpricks. But when you put them all in a book like this, where we can read them, boom, 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 one after another, it's a body blow of, of cases. It really drives home the point that you're making that we are in a real mess. Well, thank you and no thank you, because I wish we weren't in the mess. Um, but one of the greatest compliments I've had about the books thus far is from my assistant who says she's reading the newspaper differently because she's now reading with that what is the undercurrent here what hasn't been asked what don't we know as well as what the effects are that are not necessarily revealed in the article over time I began to realize that the rule of law which was supposed to free us from the tyranny of King George has become a tyranny in and of itself and it is managed by the lawyers the lobbyists the legislators the bureaucrats and we not only have the lawyers in the courtroom and the judges expanding the law, legislating in the courtroom, but we also have uh, members of Congress and members in the State House using laws as political favors. They're giving those laws away to big contributors, and the American people are suffering not only socially, but financially, and ultimately our, our way of government as a whole. And us ordinary citizens who figure, hey, I want a little piece of this pie, too, we're rushing to the civil court now to sue our neighbors when we trip over the crack in his sidewalk that he should have had fixed last year, darn it, yeah. and things like that. That that you know, you you have great stories in your book about when we, when we were kids and we would ride our bikes, you know, without helmets and without shoulder pads and knee pads and you know special liability insurance and things. If I crashed into the neighbor's tree and I broke my ankle, 
tough luck. That was, was my fault. It was your fault. Yeah. Absolutely. And it was it's terrifying to go back and think of all the times <sighs> when you might have been dragged into court had you been doing it today. I mean, I, I didn't think to sue the bike manufacturer, the neighbor who owned the tree, the you know, the, the, the guy who made the shoulder pad that I wasn't wearing or the helmet that I wasn't wearing. I didn't think to sue the city for maintaining this. No, it was my fault, and I had to answer to my dad for it. Absolutely. And when neighbors got hurt, I talk about a little girl who climbed up on her fence and she fell off and broke her arm. You never thought about suing over something like that. It was, oh, I'm, you know, I'm so sorry, and let's go get her fixed up, and everything's fine. And, you know, she was there the next day showing off her cast. Uh, but it's, it's changed completely. There's one story in there about a six- and eight-year-old playing football, and one of them delivered a late tackle, breaking the other's arm, mm-hmm. and the fathers took them into court. The opposing father saying, I'm going to teach him a lesson not to do this. Well, why don't you take him in the back and give him a paddling and get on with life? Does this come back to uh, what you quoted uh, Alexis de Tocqueville? Yes. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing my French is awful. That's perfect. <laughs> a Texan, a Texan pronouncing French is a scary thing, so don't worry. <laughs> but he had it right when he said, when, and I'm paraphrasing so very broadly here, it says if we don't voluntarily restrict our own activities, somebody's going to do it for us, and it's going to be the government. That's right. Uh, he, he really thought that we would use our principles and ideals that brought us together in the first place, uh, community, uh, common sense, rational behavior, all of those things to sort of control society. And that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's mm-hmm. what you call sort of hidden laws, social laws, mm-hmm. the way people interact. And if you don't, and he warned we would live as strangers apart from the rest, then that vacuum will be filled by not only government, but he warned that within that government, it would be the lawyers that ultimately came to dominate. Because the law has become such an animal, such a beast, it takes a lawyer to figure out the simplest thing in life these days, whether it be a civil or criminal matter. Well, it does because we have allowed this monster to, to go forth. Uh, we wouldn't have needed that 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Those lawyers, we had laws, but they weren't so complex that the average person couldn't understand them. And one of the things that I say uh, in a whole litany of things the law should do, the law should be known. Now, that may sound simple, but I'd like someone to tell me what the IRS code says. There are 36,000 pages, and I assure you there's not a human being on the planet that can tell you what's contained in there. I went looking one day on the Internet, where you can find everything, to find out a simple part of landlord-tenant law in the state of Maryland. You can't find it. Now, if you go to the library and pay, or, or, or if you go to the publisher, I mean, and pay mm-hmm. thousands of dollars for, what is it, Black's Law Library or whatever, yeah. they'll sell you that. Yeah. The average citizen, anyway, has no access to the law. Well, I so agree. How can I obey a law if I, can't, if yeah. I don't know what it says? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And we've gotten to the point that people are being punished. There is a segment in the IRS code that says non-voluntary, uh, involuntary <laughs> non-compliance. <Yes. laughs> I went, What? I didn't mean to, and I didn't comply, and I haven't a clue, and I can still be charged. <laughs> That's right. uh, so you go through that. You go through the regulatory laws, OSHA in particular. This one poor contractor said, if anybody thinks OSHA is a little town in Kansas, they're sorely mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the nightmare goes on. They indeed will regulate the kind of ladders you use, the kind of hammers you use, how long you can use the hammers, at what time of day you can use the hammers. You know, and you, you've got so many chapters in here that I just started shaking my head and shaking my fist and thinking, don't get me started on this hey, because well, see, then you mad too. What it is is misery loves company, and I wanted some company. <laughs> I carry this stuff around in my head all the time. When I got, to, you know, I, I, I was already shaking by the time I got to the chapter on, on the, the forfeiture laws. 
don't get me started on these forfeiture laws. I will not go to the state of Louisiana now after seeing that report on 2020 or 60 Minutes a few years ago. They, they're not in this to bust drug dealers. They're in this to make money for the sheriffs. Absolutely, and it's quite frightening because it's not only for the sheriffs, but in case there's a law in that state where they can't do it, then the feds can take the money and filter it right back mm-hmm. down to the state. So mm-hmm. this, is, this is a real conspiracy going. For doing nothing other wrong other than having some cash in your car. Or the little old lady who didn't know her son was smoking dope or dealing out of the back room and she can't get her house back. I mean, these are absolutely outrageous and why people aren't marching in the street over many of these things, I don't know. After this short break, Catherine Cryer gives some insight into where those stupid warning labels come from. Now back to my 2002 conversation with Catherine Cryer. You live in a state that has a strict liability law. If you lend your car to someone who then oh. commits a crime with, a, with the car, guess who they're going to come after? Absolutely, and it's, it's extraordinary. If a company rents it to you or if I were to loan it and somebody gets in a road rage incident, they're going to come back and sue me, and I had nothing to do. Even if I had no knowledge that that person may have had psychiatric problems or any sort of difficulty doesn't make any difference. What does the law expect you to do? I mean, are, are you supposed to run a complete criminal profile, psychological profile, talk screen, you know, to find out all the various possibilities, and then and only then, after they've gone through the six-month waiting period and everything like that, to do your background check, then you can lend your car? Now, what, it, what this is is an evolution. Back in the 70s and 80s, I would say, when we, when we got very touchy-feely and talked about <laughs> what makes us all tick and why we do what we do, we began to, to look places other than ourself for responsibility. It was the way we were brought up. It was this, it was that. We were victims. Uh, Somebody else has done this to us. And some enterprising lawyer got into court and said, I don't care what they knew. That was the last place that something could have been done before this person was put behind the wheel. And some judge or jury bought it. It's on the books. And then there go the cases following suit. And then you've got this horror in the books, and nobody seems to want to do anything about it, like reverse it, like mm. toss it out, like legislate, such that that's not the case. Mm. And this is also what results in stupid warning labels, <laughs> because when you see a label on an iron that says, do not iron your clothes while you're wearing them, that means some moron at some point tried it. Me! <laughs> <laughs> went on the list and I've told people, I have experience with that one. I didn't burn myself, but if I did, it would have been my fault. But somebody did, and they sued, and that's now why they have to put a stupid warning label on there. Absolutely. The one I I do love the most, my number one in there is, for all you parents out there, uh, (laughs) remove child before folding baby stroller. (laughs) Seriously, all of these things are not just some people sitting in a corner trying to make up jokes. And it is not only because of liability lawsuits, but normally the cost of everything that has a tag like that attached to it has been increased because of litigation. And that's what, uh, in the final analysis, like I said, when I got mad reading your book, ultimately that's what made me, I think, the angriest is the fact that you and I, who have done nothing wrong, are paying money, large sums of money, either through higher prices for products or higher taxes Mm -hmm. or or, or one or the other or both. I, I, I can't imagine how much money I'm spending every year because of morons. An enormous amount. There's a wonderful book called The American Tax Dodge, um, and Bartlett and Steele are the authors, investigative journalists, brilliant. And they said if simply corporate subsidies were cut back and they were made to pay 
just what they're supposed to pay, not over anything, just what they're supposed to pay, would save the average American taxpayer about $3,000. Now, that's just one reform within the IRS system. But that is the biggest area of corruption on Capitol Hill is the giveaways in in the IRS code. But part of it is, as you alluded to a moment ago, we just keep piling new laws oh, yeah. on oh, yeah. without regard to, here in Maryland, there's a heated race for governor. The Republican candidate suggested the other day, maybe we should take a look at some of the 300 gun laws on the books before we enact a new one, to which his Democratic opponent, who's related to the Kennedys, pointed out, both my father and my uncle were killed by guns. So, <laughs> and so, so now it, it's now politically incorrect to go back and review the laws that we already have. Well, it's one of the big points I try and make is asking ourselves when we read the news articles, when we hear about this sort of thing, what are we trying to do? Mm-hmm. Can the law achieve the goal? Mm-hmm. Is it even achievable? And I say that with the drug war. We have learned over the last 40 years that we will never clean the streets completely of drugs. So how do we manage this? And we don't manage it with the laws we have because this war on drugs cannot accomplish the goal that the politicians have set up. That goal is so impossible that they will be able to continue to expand the military, law enforcement, prison system, correction system, uh, ad infinitum, Mm -hmm. because we will never achieve what they tell us we should achieve. And by the way, when it comes to drug addiction, and then let's look at the other drug addiction, which is nicotine, for anybody who's listening to us Mm -hmm. right now, that 1964 Surgeon General's report, yes, smoking is harmful. How can juries not how, how can a jury listen to somebody get up on the stand and say, I've been smoking since 1990, and I didn't know it would make me sick? Well, in these big recoveries have been people who've been smoking much longer than that. And if they say, well, gee, we can't kick the habit, why, if you can't kick nicotine, do you get billions of dollars? And if you can't kick an illegal drug, you go to the pen sometimes for life. Mm-hmm. I don't get it. I've heard so many friends say, I wish I didn't stop smoking. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, and, and again, it can, it, you know, some of these things would be laughable if they weren't so serious. And the serious part about things like that is it really trivializes people who genuinely have been harmed by somebody else's genuine negligence or or, uh, irresponsibility. It trivializes all victims. There is no time that I am saying legitimate cases shouldn't Mm -hmm. go forward, that all lawyers are bad, that there there should be no rules. Of course we need rules and regulations, Mm -hmm. but we need rational, pragmatic, reasonable rules and regulations. We need to trust judges again to make decisions as opposed to telling, well, mandatory minimum means you have to do X. Determinative sentencing means you have to do Y so that punishments no longer fit the crime. So the judges can come in and say, this is a frivolous lawsuit. I'm awarding attorneys fees against you. We're going to pay the other guy because you came in and wasted our time. All these sorts of things would be modifications that could help the system if we just asked ourselves, why do we have the rule? What are we doing here? Can it accomplish the goal? And if it can't, get rid of it. Should punitive damages be awarded to the government and not to the person doing the suing? It would be hard to figure out just where, in any case, they might go. But yes, I don't. I wouldn't want them to go to general revenue where Congress can do anything they yeah, want. That's... But I have a real problem with one lucky so and so hitting the right jury, like you'd hit the lottery, mm-hmm. and getting this big award, this twenty-three billion dollars. Well, his lawyer getting it and well, him getting yeah, a right. piece of it, probably forty percent. <laughs> yeah. uh, but those punitive damages represent the punishment for an industry or uh, a corporation for what they have done to society. Not just to that, not that individual. And those damages ought to be going to society to repair, to make reparations for those problems. Well, your book, thankfully, has some suggestions. Now, whether people will actually follow the suggestions, take your advice, 
We can only hope. Well, my theory is this. You add your light to the sum of light. You put it out there and just see what happens. Catherine Cryer is 68 now. She's a partner in a firm that creates television, movies, and documentaries. And you can find easy Amazon links to Catherine Cryer's books at our website, HeardEverything.com. And at HeardEverything.com, you can also hear my 2002 interview with lawyer Johnny Cochran. When I was 11 years old, I wanted to be a lawyer. And as I think back, I can only tell you that I love to convince, to persuade, to argue. Because I didn't really know much about any lawyers until high school. And my conversation with attorney Gloria Allred. I really feel that all of my clients have been my heroes because they have gone through the original trauma of having an injury inflicted upon them, whether it's discrimination or in some other way. And yet they have been able to prevail. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, as we head into Memorial Day weekend, it's that tradition, the Indianapolis 500. So we'll go back to my 2003 interview with one of the greatest Indy 500 drivers of all time, Bobby Unser. I lost my radios right at the start of the race. I'm in the race car. Pinsky went back to the pits. I pushed the radio to do a radio check with him, and smoke came out from under my dash. The radio blew up, literally. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. <laughs>